Good morning. Good morning. If you haven't grabbed your scriptures yet, please do so and open to. Let me make sure I'm turning that. Uh, turn to Amos chapter 5. We'll be looking at verses 18 to the end of the chapter. Before we get started, let's have a word of prayer. Lord, help us this morning as we consider your text once again. You have something to communicate. And it wasn't just to Israel. It wasn't just to the ten northern tribes. Clearly you preserved this text, and so you have something for us this morning. So help us to hear it. Help us to consider it. I pray that your spirit will help us to understand. And as we understand, Lord, I pray that your spirit will transform us into people that love you, worship you, and glory in you. In your name I pray. Amen. Before we read the text this morning, I'd like to ask you three questions. They're three pretty simple questions, but at the same time, probably very profound questions. Question number one. You don't have to answer out loud. Please don't, but I want you to think about it. Question number one. What do you believe about the day of the Lord? What do you believe about the day of the Lord? Really important question. Now, when I say that, what do you believe about the day of the Lord? A couple points of clarification. If the day of the Lord doesn't resonate with you for some reason, perhaps from a knowledge standpoint, here's my question. I'm asking, what do you believe about end times, last things? It's an important question. Now, when I ask that question, I would need to clarify one step further. I'm not talking about a nice, neat theological package that you may believe. I'm not asking if you believe in, like, a pre-trib rapture or, 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 or if you believe in premillennialism or amillennialism or anything like that. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm asking more basic than that. What do you believe about the day of the Lord? What I mean by that is this. Do you believe, when you think about the day of the Lord, do you think good things? Or do you think bad things? Important question. Question number two. What do you believe God requires of you? Again, a, a very, very important question. What do you believe the Lord requires of you? Obviously, that, that question could be answered in any number of ways. <clears throat> a number of those answers could be wrong. A few of them could be right. But what do you believe God requires of you? That's number two. Number three. What do you believe God will do with his people? Again, what do you believe God will do with his people? The reason why I ask these three questions is because, frankly, in the text we're going to look at this morning, those are the three issues that Amos is going to talk about. The day of the Lord, or to put it in a more precise way, the truth of the day of the Lord, regarding the day of the Lord. Number two, he's going to talk about the truth regarding what God requires of his people. And number three... 
he's going to address the truth about what God is going to do with his people. Now, just if I could, before we even read the text this morning, if I could submit to you, what Amos is about to say to the children of Israel, to the ten northern tribes, is provocative. It's not conventional wisdom. And I would submit to you, not just for the children of Israel, but for today, I would submit to you the vast majority of people that claim to be believers today that are this morning worshiping in churches all across our land and all across this world, I would submit to you the vast majority of people would disagree even today with what Amos is about to say in all three categories. And it's important to hear that. It is provocative, it is challenging, and it is definitely a different thought process than what we oftentimes think. Talking personally, on my perspective, after 60 years of life, when I think back, especially growing up, what Amos says in all three categories is radically different from everything I ever heard. And I suspect that's not an unusual situation. Let's read the text, and then we'll walk our way through it. Starting in verse 18. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. As if a man ran from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light? And gloom with no brightness in it? I suspect, by the way, when we pause there, that most of us didn't go there when we thought about the day of the Lord. Verse 21. I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Verse 25. Did you, bring me sac- did you bring to me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You shall take of Succoth your king, and Kion, your star god, your images that you have made for yourself, and I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. Again, it breaks down into three categories, our text does this morning. The truth about the day of the Lord, verses 18 through 20. The truth about what God requires of his people, verse 21 through 24. The truth with regard to what God will do to his people, verses 25 through 27. That's what we're going to look at this morning. I want you to notice, as we jump into the text right away in verse 18, you will see something that should be, for most of us, relatively familiar. Amos, in verse 18, begins the whole passage by saying what? Woe. Starts out with woe. And in the Hebrew, it definitely starts out with woe. Now, I want to remind you, 
that when you read, especially Old Testament, New Testament as well, when you read the word woe, the writer is beginning to sing a funeral dirge. In this case, like most cases, the writer is beginning to sing the funeral dirge for the recipient of what he is about to say. In Isaiah, when he said in Isaiah 6, woe is me, obviously he's singing his own funeral song. When Jesus says, woe to you scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, he is beginning to sing the funeral song for the Pharisees. Here, Amos is beginning to sing the, the funeral song for God's people. Why? Why in all those cases? Because they stand <coughs> justified or condemned. Condemned. Absolutely condemned. We've seen that all the way through chapter 5, verse 17 in the book of Amos, have we not? So here in verse 16, or verse 18, I'm sorry, Amos turns to the final conclusion almost when he says, Woe to you. The funeral song is being keyed up. And notice what he says in the beginning of this funeral song with regard to what God, what, what the truth about, about the day of the Lord. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? A statement and a question. Probably better understood would be more literally probably understood this way. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. But why should you think anything of the day of the Lord? That's what Amos is trying to communicate. But notice what he says. Woe to you. Who's the you? The people who desire the day of the Lord. He's saying, woe to you, all you people who desire, who long for the day of the Lord. That's a pretty radical statement, isn't it? Have we not learned that we should long for the return of Christ? Well, yes. The scriptures are really clear about that. We should long for the day of the Lord. Did we not, do we not see, for example, Andrew mentioned it to me before the service this morning. In the book of Revelation, did not the apostle John say, even so, what? Come quickly. Lord Jesus, come quickly after talking 21 and a half chapters of the horrors of the day of the Lord. He says, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Sounds like he's longing for the day of the Lord, does he not? So the question is, why in the world would Amos say to these people what he says when he, say, when he sings their funeral song, who those who desire the day of the Lord? And then continuing, why would you have the day of the Lord? Or why should you even be thinking about the day of the Lord? What's he talking about? Well, we know the story because we've looked at five and a half chapters of the book of Amos. Who's the people he's referencing here? He's referencing people who have missed the whole point of the covenant that they have with their God. They've missed every single important aspect of the covenant. We have people in the book of Amos, in the day of Amos, in the ten northern tribes of Israel, we have people who are caught up in doing the things of the covenant. We have people who are caught up in doing the rituals. 
where we have people who are caught up in coming together and sacrificing the animals and doing all those type of required things, the things that they ought to be doing. These are the things we should be doing, these are the things we shouldn't be doing, so we're being really careful we do the things we should and not do the things we shouldn't. And they're missing the whole point. <coughs> they're missing the whole point. So woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. See the difference between the people in Amos' day and John, for example. Paul falls in the same category. Is what you find, if I may use John as the example, what you find in John is not a man who is doing the rituals. You don't find in John a guy who, if I use the illustration, comes to church because that's what you're supposed to do. Because God commands it. You don't find in Apostle John a guy who doesn't do the things he shouldn't do and, do, and does do the things he should do because that's what's expected. That's not what you find. What you find in the Apostle John is something radically different. What you find in the Apostle John is a man who, is, who has been and who is radically being transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. You find a man who has been and still is seeking God and, I'm quoting from last week's message, and living. You find in the Apostle John a man who is absolutely enthralled with who God is. You find in the Apostle John a man who is absolutely consumed with who Jesus Christ is. You find in the Apostle John a man who is absolutely thrilled. Absolutely thrilled that the Spirit is at work in him. He has been transformed and is being transformed. He is a repentant one. He is a God-fearer. He is a man who, by the grace and mercy of God, have been drawn close. And it's evident, isn't it? Isn't it? I mean, let's be honest. <laughs> Talk about the Apostle John. We have a man who is willing to be boiled in oil for Jesus' sake, and that's okay. We have a man who's willing to be exiled to Patmos and isn't bitter about it. It's okay with that. He sits down and writes the book of Revelation. <laughs> We, have, we can go to Paul. I'm not saying these are, are, these are heroes. This is all because the Spirit is at work in them. This is what the Spirit does in people. We have the Apostle Paul, who is looking forward to the day of the Lord. Is he not? It's really clear in his writings. He's looking forward to the day of the Lord. Why is he looking forward to the day of the Lord? Because once he was dead, and now he is alive. Once he was lost, and now he is found. 
once he hated God, and by the grace and mercy of God, now he is absolutely impelled to glorify Christ. It's pretty clear, isn't it? This man, Paul, is enthralled with Jesus. And even though it's working death in him, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he says it's working life in you, the people of the Corinthian church, and he's perfectly fine with death working in him for that purpose. Where does that come from? Are we not by nature self-preservationists? Aren't we? And he's perfectly fine being bitten by snakes and, and being shipwrecked and be, being beaten with rods and being stoned and being in prison and on and on. What's the difference? We complain because we burn our finger. What's the difference? The difference is that he is seeking what? God seeking Christ and living. Big difference. Radical difference. So what does Amos say? Not to the Johns, as it were. Not to the Pauls, as it were. Not to the Stevens. Not to the, um, to the Lukes and the rest of these people. That we see in the New Testament. Not to the remnants... A remnant that we saw in the last passage, right? Go out a thousand, come back a hundred. Go out a hundred, come back ten. The remnant? He's not speaking to the remnant here. But he's speaking to people who think they're okay. There are people, the vast majority in the ten northern tribes, are thinking that they're okay. They're longing for the day of the Lord. That's they're longing for. And John, I'm sorry, and Amos is saying that is your condemnation. That you would long for the day of the Lord. There's no reason for you to long for the day of the Lord. Because the day of the Lord, God is only going to care for who? His faithful remnant. So as he say, woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness, not light. For who? For those who think, who did, for those, and, and don't miss the point, the vast majority of the ten northern tribes, and we can't miss the point, Ken and I have talked about this regularly, you can't miss the point that throughout the scripture there is a repeated theme of the remnant. Old and New Testament both. And I hear too often people say, well, yeah, but Stephen Remnant is the church, and, and it's the lost out there, that's the ones that will be doing. No, that's not the argument of the scripture. The argument of the scripture is only a faithful remnant in the church. Just like in the people of God, the Hebrew people, there's only a faithful remnant who were saved. And we know, according to Hebrews, for example, when they went into the promised land, into their rest, there was only three people who went in of the original two and a half million. It's not like a record. We see that example repeatedly throughout the Old Testament that the remnant comes from within the larger group of people called God's people. 
In the New Testament, we find the same, same ideas that there is only a remnant inside the bigger people called God's people, the church. Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. And could I just take a, a big step back and just say this? It's still really easy for us to say, yeah, those liberal churches. It's really easy for us to say that. Some of you may have already been thinking that. Yeah, those liberal churches, they're definitely not part of the remnant. I don't think God even looks at those churches and talks about them as his people. Like the ten northern tribes would. He would talk about them as his people. That is just a crowd. That's all it is. When he talks about the church in the New Testament, he's talking about groups of people where there are some remnant within the midst. Not those that don't have any remnant. Those who have some remnant within the midst. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? And then he goes on and says at the end of 18, it is darkness, not light. To who? To the vast majority of people who claim what? That they're okay. That they're God's covenant people. To the vast, vast majority of those who claim to be God's covenant people, he says, for you, it is darkness, it is not light. And then he gives this illustration. It can be two totally separate illustrations, or it could be combined. A lot of your translations have the word or in the middle of 19. I think it probably is a, a, all one big long one. It's one big long illustration. So I'm going to read it as if it's one long illustration. It is darkness and not light, verse 19. In other words, the day of the Lord is as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him and then went into the house and leaned against his wall and a serpent bites him or bit him. What's he talking about? In this passage, verse 19, what he's describing is this. God has been bringing discipline in their life. Calling for them to return. And as the discipline has come, it has come as a lion. And many of the people just were able to avoid it. But in avoiding it, they met what? A bear. Many of those were able to avoid the bear. And they finally got to their house. And a house is a symbol, a symbol of what? Safety. safety. The people now are in their place of safety. And physically, as they look around, they certainly feel that way. It's the best of times. And in their house... They put their hand up and lean against the wall in their place of safety. And a snake bites them. What's the point of the illustration? The day of the Lord is that. He's saying to the people who are his people, he's saying, you will not avoid it. You will not avoid it. It will come. You may avoid the lion. You may avoid the bear. You may escape to the point where you feel like you're safe. It's just that moment the snake gets you. You will not avoid the day of the Lord. 
what part of the day of the Lord? The darkness, not the light. And Amos is saying it is the most incoherent thing possible that people who, in reality, are living unfaithfully. That's the point here. It is the most incoherent biblical thought someone could have that people who are living unfaithfully could still hope for the day of the Lord, which is what was happening. Could I submit to you? That's still happening. People are living unfaithfully. They claim to be believers. They're living unfaithfully. They're not repentant. They're not living a lifestyle of repentance. They're not seeking God and living, to quote back from the earlier part of the chapter. They're not seeking God and living. They really don't know who God is. They really don't know who Jesus is. They really don't know who the Holy Spirit is. They don't understand that very much. They have a little science to understand, but they really haven't sought Him. And they're not continuing to seek Him, or to use New Testament terms, they're not drinking deeply at the well, at the fountain of living water, and continuing to drink deeply at the fountain of living water, or to use other terms, they're not eating of the bread of life and continuing to eat of the bread of life. <coughs> they're not living within the light of the world. They're not living their life in the face of God. God seldom even shows up on the radar screen. And yet, they're still saying, Oh my goodness, we hope for the day of the Lord. Even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. And we talk about Christ returning as if it's a good thing. And Paul's, or I'm sorry, Amos says here, No, it's darkness. If you're unfaithful, if you're not living what God says a, a true believer, a true covenant person should be living... It's darkness. It's not light. It should be a horrifying thing. Not a good thing. It's darkness. Not light. And you're going to get bit. And that bite is a fatal bite. Verse 20. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? The answer to the question is, yes, it is only darkness. There is no light in it. It is only gloom. For who? Now we know outside of Amos, for those who are lost, right? For those who are of the world, right? Of the kingdom of Satan, right? We'll get that. Amos' argument is, that kingdom of Satan group is a lot bigger than we think. It includes a vast swath of people who claim to be God's people. It's darkness. It's gloom. And there's no light. So the question that God asks, why would you be enthralled with the day of the Lord? if we're unfaithful. If we're doing the exact same things that the children of Israel are doing. All the rituals, all the perfunctive things, looking right. As Jesus said to the Pharisees, we've got lighted sepulchers, but inside it's full of dead men's bones. 
our heart, our, our, our true heart is after something else other than God. Which brings us to verse 21, where Amos then, just to remind you, moves on from the truth of the day of the Lord to the truth of what God requires of his people. And he starts out with a bunch of negatives before he moves to a positive. So we need to hear the negatives. And the negatives are painful. Let me read them again to you. I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen. Now, it's really easy, before I unpack this text, it's very easy for us to say, yeah, but Steve, this is pre-Christ death and crucifixion. Everything has changed because our, our sins have atoned, has been atoned for now, so this doesn't apply anymore, right? <clears throat> wrong answer. Horribly wrong answer. Because what we're doing, once again, is presuming... We're presuming that what Christ did on the cross actually is applied to us. That's the presumption. And we forget the point that the scriptures teach all through the New Testament. That when, somebody, when, when someone is saved, gloriously saved, by the Holy Spirit, taking us from death to life, he takes away our heart of stone and he gives us what? A fleshy heart. And that fleshy heart is... Got a totally different, according to the scriptures, a totally different orientation. Because when one is truly saved, they move from hating God to loving God. They move from despising the things of God to craving the things of God. That's not what I do to myself. Because not up to the one who wills or works, but it's up to the one who shows mercy, and that's God. But when God shows mercy on someone, they are transformed and transforming. They go from being ashamed of Christ to being enthralled with Christ. That's what happens. They go from Christ not being on the radar screen to being the only thing on the radar screen. Which is why, for a true believer, when something else is embraced that is not Christ's word, all things are from him, through him, to him, to him be glory forever. When a true believer goes and grabs a hold of something that is not Christ's word, he finds himself being like Paul in Romans chapter 7 and proclaiming, Grievingly, the very things I want to do are not the things that I do, and the very things I know I shouldn't do are the things I do. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will set me free? And he rushes off to to Jesus Christ, which leads to profound rejoicing, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Profound from the heart, all being rejoicing. That's what happens when the Spirit's at work in someone's life. It's not perfunctory. It's not just mere activity. 
is not coming to church and singing songs and not being blown away by the message of the songs. True worship comes from within. So, what does God say here to these people who are desiring the word of the Lord that it's illegitimate? He's saying to them, I hate, I despise your feasts. I want you to notice, he says it twice in two different ways. I hate and I despise. The emphasis, it, it cannot be missed. It cannot be clearer. What does it mean if he hates or despises their feast and everything else that comes after this? <coughs> what does it mean? It means it has no effect on God positive. Well, what has effect on him? <laughs> he hates it. He despises it. I want to remind you, the feasts that are being talked about are the feasts that are described in the law. They are very high, important, religious things. And God says, I hate them all. I despise them. And he goes on. You gather together... Your solemn assemblies, talking about worship, getting together, corporate worship. What does he say? I take no delight in your solemn worships, your solemn assemblies. There's nothing pleasurable in them for God. And then verse 22, even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Those are very, very interesting statements. In the, in, the, in the Old Testament covenant, these, these sacrifices he talks about here, your burnt offerings, your grain offerings, your peace offerings are tied to, for the most part, are tied to sin offerings, but they're also described as giving comfort, pleasure to Yahweh. And what does he say here? Even though you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will what? Accept them. I will not accept them. I reject them. And peace offerings of your fatted animals, I will not even look upon. The very things that by God's design are to please Him and comfort Him, He says, I reject every last one of them. I will not look on them. I will not accept them. In effect, he's saying to them, stop wasting your time. Has he ever said that anywhere else? Yes. What do you say in Malachi? Malachi chapter 1, God said through the, through the prophet Malachi the exact same thing. I wish someone, God says, I wish someone would go to the temple and put out the fire and lock the doors. I don't want it. I don't want any of that. But wait a second. He required it, didn't he? Didn't he? Wasn't it a requirement? Yes! These things are a requirement of the people. And they're doing them. He required it and they're doing it. You'd think he'd be pleased, right? No. He's absolutely not pleased. Why? Because their heart is far from him. That's why. Heart's elsewhere. 
They're doing the things, but their hearts are caught up with something else. Then verse 23, take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen. Whoa. Andrew? Be like he's saying, shut up. Stop it. Put down the guitar. Jim, put down the bass guitar. Everybody, just be quiet. Take it away. I won't listen. I'm not hearing you. That's what he's saying. If our lives are not lives that are according to what God requires of his people, they don't accept it. Just don't. In fact, if our hearts are not after what God requires, the simple reality is that our singing songs condemns us. Even further. And I want you to notice he calls it a noise, which is a radical different approach, isn't it, to Psalm 150? He talks about noise there too, doesn't he? Doesn't he? There he says what? In Psalm 150, anybody remember? Make a joyful noise, right? Make a joyful noise unto the Lord. All ye lands. That's what he says. But here it's different. Because in Psalm 150, your joyful noise, if your heart is after what God requires, is beautiful music to the Lord. But here, it's 180 degrees out of phase from that. Here, the most beautiful music in the world is just noise to God. And he's take away the noise. I don't want it. I find it absolutely unacceptable. So he starts out this section about what is the, what, what the truth is about what God requires. It's the first thing he's saying in the negative, here's what he requires. He requires worship. <coughs> that is not inconsistent with heart. Or to put it a different way, he is required to reject worship that is inconsistent with heart. If our heart is not hot after God, the rest of it is condemnation. And we know that's true, right? Do you remember uh, uh, Mount Sinai? Moses up on top of the mountain. He's getting ready to go up on top of the mountain. I mean, the people say, Moses, you go for us because, you know, that's God. And they're afraid, aren't they? And God says what about them? Does anybody remember? He says about them at that point in time, he says, I hear their words. And their words are right. Their words are good. But what does he say next? Their hearts are far from me. Their hearts are far from me. They're saying the right things. Their hearts are far from me. To change to Amos 5, their, heart, their, their words, their songs are saying the right things. Their hearts are far from me. 
Their sacrifices are the right things to sacrifice. Their hearts are far from me. The activities they're doing in general are the right activities. Their hearts are far from me. God requires right hearts. Can I put it this way? God always examines your heart before he examines your activity. He always does. He always examines your heart before he examines your song. He always examines your heart before he examines your sacrifice. He always examines your heart before he examines your service. He always examines your heart before he examines your ministry. He always does. Always. So after he goes to the negatives, he shifts it over to what he does require of his people. Verse 24. But let let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Justice, of course, is based upon what is going on in Amos' day. Amos' day. The people claim that they love God. The people claim that they worship Him. The people claim that they belong to Him, that they are His children. They, they're claiming that they're longing for the day of the Lord, and on and on and on. But they are treating the poorest of the poor horrifically. They're being unjust to people who cannot defend themselves. That was what was going on in this day. Now, one level we can say it's never changed, has it? It's still going on. But let me just submit to you that when he says, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream, their justice will flow out of true righteousness. And he says here, let righteousness and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Radical statement here. What does he mean when he says righteousness? Because at one level, there's no question. You and I are not righteous, are we? The only righteousness if we're saved is what? The only righteousness we have is whose? It's Christ's. That's it. If we're truly saved, we have Christ's righteousness. But here's the question, if I may ask is, obviously we're in that already not yet time frame because Christ has already come and he died and rose again and fulfilled the Old Testament Can I just ask you a quick question? If we've been given Christ's righteousness, does that have any effect? This is really important. Does it have any effect? It's crucial. Does it have, let me add to it, does it have a little effect? Does it have a big effect? Or does it have a monumental effect? What should it have? That's the question. Now what I'm trying to say is not, please don't miss my point, I'm not saying that when we get to heaven and we hear God say, well done, good and faithful servant, in any way he's talking about you and I, because he's not. He's talking about Christ, because he sees the righteousness we have. I get that. At the same time, there is no question, we can't miss the point, that the scriptures, especially in the New Testament, describe the Old Testament as well in different ways, but describe very clearly that if we were dead and we now are alive as alive beings, what happens by the power of the Holy Spirit? We begin to bear fruit. 
And then he, the scriptures tell us he then prunes us. And the result is that we then bear much, much fruit, 30, 60, 100 fold. That's not new news to us. You know what Jesus is saying in those passages? He's saying when you were dead and are made alive and received his righteousness, something radical changes. Doesn't it? We become radically different people, don't we? 30, 60, 100 fold. That sounds like radical difference. And when you look at the, the, the especially the New Testament, but even Old Testament, there's no question. When you see people who are taken from death to life, do they not have radical change? Every one of them, Christwardly? That's not what they're doing. They're not pulling themselves up by the bootstraps. That's not what they're doing. What's happening? The Spirit is at work in them, and the result is that you find a man who was obscure and nobody before he was saved suddenly is transformed, transformingly by the Spirit, saved, taken from death to life, and just a short time later, Stephen is up knowing he's going to die, and he preaches Christ and him crucified. Doesn't he? A man who absolutely hated Christ runs into Christ on the road to Damascus, and the next thing you know, he's preaching Christ and him crucified three days later or so. And then from there, he spends three plus years out in the wilderness learning of Christ from Christ himself, at which point in time, the entire trajectory of his life changes, doesn't it? You have various disciples who are either Peter, who is... Just a businessman, a really successful businessman. He meets Christ and he what? He walks away from it all. Now I know he goes back briefly after the crucifixion. He's not our hero. But a man who's afraid of a slave girl. And then after the resurrection and the ascension, he's standing in front of thousands of people and he preaches Christ and him crucified powerfully what happened? Did Paul just turn over a new leaf? Is that what happened? No, he's transformed. That's what happened with Peter. John, son of thunder. The guy was all over the map. He does what? He's transformed. And caught up with Jesus. He's just driven by the love of Christ. That's what you see. How is it possible you'd see Paul and Silas singing praises to God in prison? Or Paul saying, This is the best thing that could possibly happen to me in prison? <laughs> Philippians. I mean, the themes flow everywhere on the scriptures, don't they? Moses, not perfect, go back to the Old Testament. But Hebrews tells us very clearly, all the wealth of Egypt, and he looked at Christ and said, I'd rather have Christ. And he walked away from it all. Because he wanted Christ. 
That's what the Spirit does in people. Friends, I think we've sold the Spirit down the river. We really don't think Christ does that. We don't think the Spirit does that anymore. We just don't. So what is righteousness? Can I just submit to you, righteousness is not primarily or even secondarily. It's not doing all the right things. It's not what it is. That's what got them into this mess. They're doing the right things, aren't they? They're worshiping, they're sacrificing, they're singing. Oh, they got other things going on. We're talking about in a few seconds. Other bad things going on. But they're doing all these good things too. All these things that were actually commanded by God to do. But because of the problem things, God rejects the good things. And the reason why is because they're not righteous. And they're not after righteousness. That's not what fuels them. That's not what drives them. That's not what's hot and heavy for them. So what is righteousness in Amos' idea here? When he says here, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream, the context of the verse explains it to us. The bigger context. What did he say earlier in Amos? Verse 6, seek the Lord and live. Verse 5, I missed verse 5. Seek the Lord, or seek me and live. Verse 14, seek good and not evil, that you may live. Verse 15, hate evil and love good. And all that is informed by the most central part of righteousness. That, frankly, is secondary stuff. When he says, let righteousness and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream, how do we know anything about righteousness? How can we possibly know anything about righteousness? It's a really important question. Anybody? Christ is the picture of it. Because Christ is the picture of it. More, more broadest for in the Old Testament. Because God is righteous. The only way I can know anything about righteousness is because God is righteous. And the only way I can know anything about righteousness is because, more importantly, that God has revealed himself as the only righteous one. Correct? Which is why in the middle of last message, we saw, verse 8 and 9, the emphasis on who God is. The attributes of God. The only way that righteousness could ever flow from a person true biblical righteousness is if we as a saved person are drawn by the Holy Spirit to look to the Godhead and learn of God and understand who God is according to what he's revealed 
Now, just learning of what God has said about himself will do nothing for us. Right? It'll do nothing for me except for giving me more data. But if the Spirit is at work in me, drawing me to himself, I will have a what? A unquenchable longing to know who God is. To know about his character, his attributes, to learn of him. For what purpose? To glorify him more specifically, tightly to Amos? For what purpose? So that Christ's righteousness, or God's righteousness, will what? Will transform us and therefore flow, the verse we're looking at, flow through us. How will it flow through us? Well, there it is. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. That's what the Spirit does in His people, in His true remnant. What is How is it described? And righteousness like a what? An ever-flowing stream. That's an interesting statement. It never stops. It doesn't kind of bubble up at church day. It doesn't bubble up during my devotions. It doesn't just bubble up when I am driving down the road and the Christian song comes on by a red light. How does it describe? An ever-flowing stream. This is what a remnant looks like. And this is what God requires of His people. He, can I just say this? He requires of you and me something you and I cannot do. Do you realize that? I can't make this happen. You can't make this happen. This is a spirit work. I can't get up here and say, guys, ladies, you need to try hard to get righteousness flowing out of you. What? This is another law. <clears throat> another false worship. This is what the Spirit does. And the Spirit is at work in us, friends. He draws us to Himself. He requires of His children something that only His true children can have happen, and it only happens by the Spirit. It is not something that we can conjure up. The point, if I stop here for a second, is this. If we look at our lives and we say, ever-flowing stream? Yeah, not so much, Steve. Occasional stream? That, that's not biblical. Some may say, yeah, got an occasional stream. In the Old Testament, it's called a wadi. A wadi is something that flows during the rainy season, is dry during the rest of the season. You know from the scriptural accounts, Paul in prison is pretty dry season, isn't it? That's a dry season. Is, is righteousness flowing? Yeah. Stephen facing an imminent death. Dry season? Yep. Righteousness flowing. If you find yourself saying, yeah, that's not me. It's not flowing. 
It may be a wadi, and some of us may say, eh, I, don't, I don't know if I ever see right this morning. I just challenge you with something that may be very painful. Maybe we're not saved people. Perhaps we're not remnant people. Perhaps we're deceived. Because this is what remnant people look like. And the call of the scripture is to seek God and live. That's what he said. Right in the same chapter. This is nothing new. You've heard me say this many times. Right? Seek me and live, God says. And the only way we'll seek him is if the spirit is at work in us, making us alive. But seek me and live. Which is another way of saying repent and believe, as Jesus said. Repent and believe. He goes on 25 to 27. And he talks about the truth of what God's going to do with his people. He starts out with a very confusing verse. Did you bring to me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness of the house of Israel? And when we hear the question, our gut response, our knee-jerk response is to say, no. I mean, that's the easy response, but it's not the right response. It did. The scriptures do record at least a few occasions where they sacrificed. And then there's silence, which implies one way or the other. But they did sacrifice. We do know that. Did they sacrifice all the time? We don't know. But they definitely did sacrifice. But what's interesting in the, in the way Amos asked the question, did you bring me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? The easy answer is yes, because the scripture records that they did. But the answer is more complicated than that. Because when they came out of Egypt, we find out later that they still had something else with them that they shouldn't have with them. What was it? They still had idols with them. Joshua chapter 24 makes it really clear as Joshua follows their repentance and tells them to give up their idols that they brought out of Egypt. So therefore, when he says, did you sacrifice to me? The answer initially is yes, but ultimately it's what? It's no. Why? Because it was a syncretistic religion, wasn't it? It was a merging of different things. I'm worshiping God and worshiping here too. I'm worshiping God Yahweh and I'm worshiping these other gods as well. And the more things change, the more they stay the same, don't they? I'm worshiping God and I'm also worshiping my safety. I'm worshiping God and I'm also worshiping my finances. I'm worshiping God and I'm also worshiping my, my health. I'm worshiping God and I'm also worshiping my status. I'm worshiping God and I'm also worshiping my family. I'm worshiping God and I'm also worshiping fill in the blank. It's happening. And we just don't use the word worship because we think if we use the worship it's really bad so we just don't do it. But we do it all the time. So the question that Amos asked the ten northern tribes, did you bring to me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness of the house of Israel? Yes and no. And the question echoes down through time to you and I to ask the question, did you and I bring sacrifices and offerings 
And don't think we don't have sacrifices today. The Bible tells us we do. Sacrifices of praise, for example. Did you and I bring sacrifice over the course of our years to God? The easy answer is what? Yes. Offering plates back there. We put money in. We sing praises and other ways of doing that as well. Yes. But just like Israel, for too long, if we slow down and think about it, you know what we've been doing right along with it? We've been worshiping elsewhere. Why? Because righteousness is not flowing like a river. Like an unending stream. Because we haven't sought God and lived. Because we haven't been hot in pursuit. We can't miss the point of the New Testament Jesus says, if you seek me, seek me and live. If you seek me, you will find me. If you seek me, half-heartedly. If you seek me, along with all the other things you're seeking. Is that what he said? Are you seeking anything else? This question. Are you seeking anything else? Are you deceiving yourself and thinking, oh, if I only had this, I only had that, if I only experienced this, if I only experienced that. If, 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 if. Or I gotta, 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 gotta. Or I want, I want, I want, I want, I want, I want. Jesus said, you will find me. But you will only find me if you seek me. And that too is spirit driven. Seek me and live. Are we just like the Israelites? The ten northern tribes in Amos' day? We brought sacrifices and offerings. But we really didn't. So has anything changed for the ten northern tribes of Israel? The answer is yes and no. Oh, they've changed. But no, they haven't changed. Notice what the next verse says. You shall take up Sikoth, your king, and Kion, your star god, your images you have made for yourselves. Let me just stop right there for just a second. That's an interesting statement. See, when the children of Israel, according to Joshua 24, came out of the land of Egypt, they took Egyptian gods with them. Joshua demanded they get rid of them, and they wouldn't. And we know what happened after that. It was a train wreck. One after another, after another, after another. However, according to verse 26... Israel gave up their Egyptian gods. Because these gods that are listed, these two gods that are listed, are not Egyptian gods. They're Babylonian gods. <coughs> they gave up their Egyptian gods. But all they did is swap them out to Egyptian to, to uh, Babylonian gods. That's all they did. You know what that means? If I may just skin it out a little bit. Well, those Egyptian gods didn't work for us. So let's try the Babylonian gods out for size. Oh, we're not going to let go of God, just like they told Joshua. No, no, no. God's number one. God is number one. We're not going to give up these other gods. God said, no, no, no. I'm a jealous God. I will not share my glory with another, but they would not give them up. And so Israel did eventually give them up, but they didn't. They just swapped. 
They're still desperately trying to keep God number one. But God always intended to be only, not number one. And so God says to them, You shall take up Sikoth, your king, and Kion, your star god. Take your gods. You're going to take your gods. Pick them up. Your images that you've made for yourself. Verse 27. And I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. You want your gods? God says to Yahweh, says to Israel, the ten other tribes, you want your gods? They're yours. I give you over to them. And you will go into exile beyond Damascus. Going into exile is a horrific thing physically, but it's a more horrific thing spiritually. Because when you're removed from the land according to the covenant, you cease receiving God's blessings and all you receive is God's curse. That's the symbolism of being taken into captivity into exile. How much of a curse was it? They didn't return. They were gone. The remnant survived. A faithful remnant, always. But just a remnant. God is saying to the children of Israel, you want to cling to these other gods? Cling to them. I give you over to them. And you will be cursed. And the day of the Lord will come. Now, let me close with this real quickly. A couple, two things. Number one, day of the Lord in the scriptures oftentimes, almost always, is referencing the ultimate day of the Lord. The day he comes in ultimate judgment. For Amos, as he prophesied this, he was probably thinking, ultimate day of the Lord. It turned out not to be. It turned out instead to be something very important for you and I. Not for them. It ended up being a picture of ultimate day of the Lord. A very important, poignant picture of the day of the Lord. Because it's in that day that the sheep and goats are going to be separated. And there's going to be many in that day that will say, Lord, Lord. And he will say to me, what? Depart from me, I never knew you. Many. And that's not referencing on those we would classically call unsaved. He's talking about people who think they're truly saved, who have been functioning that way. They've been doing. Isn't that what he says? We've been doing all these things in your name. But there's no, no, there's no knowing. Same as Amos. And they depart into eternal darkness. That's the picture. The judgment on the ten northern tribes is a picture of what is yet to come. And I would argue the ten northern tribes are a picture of the church. It's very important that we grasp this because the day of the Lord is coming and He will judge. But it's only the faithful remnant. Who are the faithful remnant? Those who find themselves by the power of the Holy Spirit 
being drawn to seek the Lord in death. It is those who are learning of God and tasting and seeing that He is good and He, God, is consuming their lives. Because that's how powerful He is. It's He, God, who is transforming them 30, 60, and 100 fold. That's what God does. And those people just continue seeking God and living. They continue to drink deeply at the fountain of living water. They are the ones who are eating continually the bread of life. They're the ones who are continually rushing off to the balm and Gilead. They're the ones who are just forever by the Spirit finding themselves grieving always and yet rejoicing always. They're people who find themselves forever repenting and enjoying God's forgiveness. They are people who by the power of the Holy Spirit are finding the things of this earth growing strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. And they are people who find that the attributes of God, righteousness, the very attributes of God, even though it's in an imperfect way, are flowing from them like it never in the I'm beginning to look more and more like my Father God and less and less like my whole Father Son. The very attributes of God are flowing from the true Because that's the point. God defines righteousness. And if righteousness is flowing from us, that means that Godness, I'm not saying we're God. I'm saying the attributes of God in an imperfect way, but the attributes of God are evidently flowing like a, like a, a never-ending flowing stream. Can I just submit to us real quick what it can't be? The righteousness flowing from us like a never-ending stream cannot be that we have different gods. Can't be. Just can't. It's incoherent. Righteousness flowing in a never-ending stream cannot look like not ministering to people, not ministering to other believers. Can't look like that. That's not righteousness. Because God's all about his people, isn't he? If I'm not ministering to his people, what does that say about me? There's no righteousness flowing. I'm not saying we need to get out there and start ministering to people. I'm saying seek him and live. Righteousness cannot be flowing from me if I'm refusing to tell any, any lost people about Jesus. That is not righteousness. Christ didn't, God, God the Father didn't say, oh, no, I'm righteous, but I really don't want my son to die. I'm righteous. No, I'm 100% righteous. I define righteousness, but I'd really rather not my son die. No, instead it pleased him to cause his son to suffer. That's what righteousness does. rescued us from darkness to light, the result is, if we're truly rescued, is righteousness flows. And we find ourselves doing what? We find ourselves 
Not, well, God commands me, so I got to do it. I find myself so enthralled with Jesus. I got to tell people about Jesus. Jesus. I find myself so enthralled with the God who saved me. I just got to tell people about God. It just happens. And then there's times when I sin. And I don't tell people about Jesus. You know what happens? It's devastating. And I find myself repenting. Why? If I'm truly saved, that's what happens. Why? Because the Spirit is at work. See, righteousness flows like a never-ending stream. And that righteousness looks like the attributes of God. That's what it looks like. The alternative is to go into exile, which is a picture of being cursed. So can I just challenge all of us with what the text simply says? Seek God and live. That's what he says. And in the statement, seek God and live, because God has revealed himself in the truth of the scriptures, therein we find mercy, do we not? Isn't that the perfect picture of God's attribute of mercy? Isn't it? That he would reveal himself and call us to learn of him and give us a spirit to learn of him and give us the truth of him. It's amazing. The answer is not to do better. The answer is not to work harder. The answer isn't to sacrifice more. The answer isn't to sing louder or better. The answer isn't even primarily to go to war against your other gods. The answer is to seek God and live. Because when we see God for who he really is, those other gods look really silly. Wood, stone, steel, paper. I mean, my goodness. If we didn't get anything from Andrew's message two weeks ago... That's it. Because Andrew pointed out in, in, in Daniel what? That the stone overwhelms it all. If I may be silly for a second, we're enthralled with rock, paper, scissors. And the rock's not the right rock. <laughs> because the true rock, the true stone wipes it all. And when we're enthralled with this true stone, everything else falls into place. Even if we burn up in the fiery furnace. Or if he sets us free. It's all about the stone. And everything else fades to black. It just does. And when we find, because we're still sinners, that it doesn't, Spirit is powerful to draw us to himself again. So let us together and privately <coughs> seek the Lord. Amen? Let's pray. Help us. Help us, Lord, because the, the truth of the matter is for too long we have so often been enthralled with the day of the Lord, whether it is the theology, theological implications or just the idea of you returning. 
and yet we're unfaithful people. And too often we don't even care that we're unfaithful people. Too often, Lord, we have had the, all the wrong requirements. But the only real thing you require is that we know you. And that we know you intimately, because everything else flows out of that. For too long, we have thought we could hold on to the various things we have hold, held on to so dearly close to our chest. And that somehow you ignore that or just wink at it. But you cannot do so because you are a holy God. And so, Lord, we ask you to help us. We ask you to do what we cannot do. Open our eyes to see how we have been so wrong in so many ways. And open our eyes to see you. And we ask you to inflame our hearts with a love for, for you that can only come from you. And we ask you to let righteousness flow from us like a never-ending stream for your glory. In your name I pray. Amen.